Welcome to the Climate Techies Sustainability Series, brought to you by Forward VC. If you're looking to network with other climate founders, investors, and corporates in the space, find solutions for decarbonization, potential investors, partners, or clients, learn more about Climate Tech IP, or just relevant carbon accounting and ESG tools, you've come to the right place. To connect with us and the 4,000 other plus Climate Techies, please visit forward.vc slash techies to join our community, WhatsApp and Slack communities, to access our climate solutions and climate VC database, plug into our ecosystem and find other partners to work with. More details at climatetechies.com. At this point, and so originally was working on helping companies uh, implement, you know, technologies around clean energy, um, energy efficiency. And, you know, I think one of the things that I've always been really interested in is kind of the way that, you know, technology can be a catalyst for, for positive change. And I think given, you know, the speed that certain organizations need to be able to make decisions around and improve and really move their corporate sustainability forward. It's also, I guess, true for investors and, and regulators and governments as well. Um, we decided and, and I sort of decided that a, a, a software first approach actually would enable more speed and kind of more velocity. And then you can get kind of the follow on investment and implementation after the fact, um, because obviously, you know, if you can't uh, measure something, you can't manage it. If you don't really know where you're starting, it's hard to improve on something. And so we want to make sure that organizations have a really good data baseline for their sustainability and ESG work, and then they can carry that forward. And thanks so much for joining the program and really to give us a bit of an overview, because I know that ESG is a big topic for a lot of people. There's a lot of laws and a lot of regulations, a lot of which depend on which country you're in and which country you're based in and which country you're operating in. So thanks for joining. I wanted to give you kind of the chance to share exactly what our, our listeners and audience need to know. We've got corporates, we've got investors, startups, government agencies. First, you want to take us a little bit through the, the ESG 101 and then get into what the, the different, the different um, stakeholders, so to speak, need to know about ESG reporting and what the, what the future holds for them. Yeah, sure. And and I actually have a couple slides that I can try to bring up uh, if you think some Yeah, some go for it. Take helpful. it away. All right, cool. Let's uh let's do this. And for anybody um, listening in, if you want to find out more about Brightest, it's just forward.vc slash brightest for uh for more details. If I if I go slideshow here, can everyone see my screen? It's looking good. Take it away. Awesome. Um so yeah, so again, as I mentioned, you know, all of our work relates to sustainability and ESG data. So we work with, you know, everyone from kind of startups to investors to international publicly traded companies. Um, when we talk about sustainability or ESG data and reporting, you know, there's obviously a lot of different kind of starting points and even different types of reporting. So I want to talk a little bit about kind of the different types, then why this is important, you know, what are some of the differences between laws, standards, and frameworks, and then some of the kind of practical aspects of how do you go about this if you're newer to it, some of the lessons that we've learned, and, you know, as a closing point or a sort of shameless plug, you know, how technology can assist you in this journey. So, you know, when we talk about reporting, there's basically actually like five different types of ESG or sustainability reporting. And I'm using sustainability and ESG fairly interchangeably because different organizations might use one or the other. 
you could potentially define this as kind of sustainability is how an organization or a company or an investor impacts the world. <laughs> and ESG is how kind of the world impacts the company or the investor or the portfolio. So you can kind of look at it through the either out in or, you know, sort of global macro lens. But often from a practitioner perspective, they can kind of ultimately mean the same thing. So I'll use them fairly uh, interchangeably here. So the first type where you typically would encounter more ESG is investor reporting. So publicly traded companies, Hello? even private companies oh. often will do ESG reporting. Hold on, I think this someone mess. might need to go on. Um, I'm getting over a cold. They don't want to give it to you. <laughs> Hey, 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 Matt, can we Don't. mute everyone? Yeah, I'm looking. Here yeah. we go. Oh, Looks I'm like upstairs, Corey. I think. Yeah. Okay. Apologize, okay. folks, for the technical difficulties. This is the first session with live guests. Corey, can you uh, can you mute yourself? That seems cool. to it seems to be okay. Awesome. Okay, yeah, um, take it away. Yeah, so I think I think the first aspect is is investor reporting. So most publicly traded companies at this point, particularly ones that are you know publicly traded in Europe or the United States or Hong Kong, are doing ESG reporting to investors. And I think one of the more recent trends that we've been seeing in the past year is more private companies doing ESG reporting to their investors. So private equity companies are now starting to ask uh, their portfolios for ESG disclosure. We've started to see more late stage startups doing ESG reporting based on kind of VC term sheets and requirements there. So it's kind of like going down the, the capital chain and starting to impact smaller companies. But it's very common for organizations to provide information that then investors and analysts can use to kind of assess the ESG related investment risks and opportunities around a company. Then there's also this trend around customer-based reporting, so essentially supply chain reporting. Often a very large company that has regulatory implications or obligations, so you could imagine someone like a, a Nestle, for example. You know, Nestle is going to its suppliers and its logistics partners and saying, hey, we have obligations around this to report to the government or to our investors. Um, we need information from you so that we can have kind of a full and complete picture. And also because a lot of global organizations' environmental impacts are actually largely concentrated in their supply chain, you know, often 80 to 90% of a company's emissions are scope three emissions, which means their emissions from transportation and logistics and manufacturing kind of upstream of that entity itself. Uh, customer reporting is also becoming more important around carbon, uh, human rights, and, and other areas. Then you've got regulatory reporting, which is also a, an emerging trend that particularly within the last few years, there's been a lot more ESG regulations coming out. Uh, the EU CSRD, the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, is probably the, the biggest one right now. Um, that actually was passed kind of this year and starts to take effect next year for eligible companies. But there's also reporting regulations that are either happening or about to happen in the UK and Australia, um, Canada, and other countries as well. The SEC is looking at potentially doing something by the end of this year. Then you've got company external reporting. So certain companies like B Corps um, or organizations who have aligned with a specific framework might do voluntary reporting, even if they're not asked to. Um, and then you have the internal reporting aspect of 
you know, really organizations like sustainability departments looking at KPIs and their internal performance and saying, okay, you know, how are we doing based on this science-based emissions target that we've set? Um, or, you know, how are we doing at, you know, reducing or diverting waste and, and improving the circularity of our, our business model? So, you know, when we talk about ESG and sustainability reporting, we could mean one of these things. We could mean all of these things. Most big companies are doing all five, um, but different organizations and different investors based on what they're doing and, you know, the type of business that they're in, their value chain, et cetera, et cetera, might be doing different combinations of these. Moving on kind of to the next stage, I think, you know, there is also this uh, commonly uh, referred to as alphabet soup of different standards. And you can kind of think about the different standards and reporting frameworks and laws falling into different categories. So you have global goals and principles where perhaps the most famously known as the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. You have more kind of corporate operational reporting frameworks. So an example of that might be like the ISSB, or SASB or greenhouse gas protocol, where this is really focused on like corporate measurement and KPI tracking. You have investor ratings and kind of an indices. So S&P or MSCI is going to be ranking organizations on their disclosures and issuing ratings. And then you have the specific like regulatory laws and frameworks. So the EU taxonomy regulation, the CSRD, um, the SEC climate reporting mandate, if it ever ends up happening. So, you know, again, there's there's kind of different categories that you can bucket these different frameworks under. But most organizations are saying, okay, you know, what do we have to do from a regulatory standpoint? Like, what are our legal obligations where we operate? Um, what are our obligations to our investors or what are investors asking us for? Based on that, what internal frameworks and operational standards should we implement? And then potentially, you know, does that align with like global goals and principles? And how do we report on that from a from a narrative perspective? You know, and I think the the modern challenge that is becoming increasingly prevalent, again, particularly with large and publicly traded companies, but is even starting to again become more of an issue in the private sector, is that you know every company now needs to report across all of these. Um, and there's a lot of them. And unfortunately, they're often doing that with like a very small team, as in, in some cases, you know, you might have one person who's responsible for investor relations or ESG reporting or sustainability in a company. Even at larger companies, these might be two, three, four, five person teams. So ESG and sustainability often runs pretty lean, as so does investor relations. And then, you know, you also have the issue that all of these are slightly different, sometimes significantly different. So being able to do a really good job and report to SASB doesn't necessarily set you up well with CDP. Um, being able to measure your emissions might be really helpful for TCFD, but it doesn't tell you anything about, you know, what you're doing from a sustainable development goals perspective or what your GRI like social uh, impacts look like. And so, you know, a lot of organizations are trying to triangulate across all of these sort of map metrics and data across them and then understand, you know, how do we do this as efficiently as possible and not keep duplicating work and, and reinventing the wheel. So uh, beyond that, like, you know, why, again, is this becoming even more and more of a trend and why is this even more important? 
So obviously the first point that I've already alluded to is just the regulatory trend. There are a ton of regulations that have come out in the past two years. There's lots more regulations coming. There's different kind of flavors of regulations. I think one is around investor reporting and disclosure, particularly often related to like climate risks. So essentially different securities organizations mandating that companies that are listed on a specific exchange more or less disclose to investors how climate change is going to impact their business model and their financials going forward. So that's a big kind of common flavor that we're seeing around the world. Another one is like supply chain due diligence and human rights. So lots of protections against forced labor, child labor. You see that in the US with the FLPA, the, the Uyghur um, Forced Labor Prevention Act. Um, you see that in Canada with the S211 supply chain disclosure agreements. Germany now has the LKSG supply chain due diligence laws. So there's a lot of governments that are basically saying if you're making products with you know, child labor or forced labor or modern slavery or anything like that, um, you're basically in, in trouble uh, and you need to stop. And so a lot of organizations are now investing a lot of effort in really understanding and doing kind of traceability and reporting around their suppliers as well as kind of due diligence. And then there's the more, I guess, what you could consider holistic sustainability or ESG frameworks. So that would include something like the EU, the CSRD, or the SFDR for investors, um, the BSRS in India, and some of these more like cross-discipline, cross-metric, uh, more comprehensive sustainability reporting mandates. But again, there's lots of these regulations that are being introduced, more being developed. And I think over the next five to 10 years, like this is kind of the new like regulatory compliance normal for a lot of companies. Just to jump in quick, it seems absurd to have this many standards. Why is there not more of a push to standardize this? Yes, um, I think part of the problem is that like a lot of these independent standards got set up over the last couple of years and there was kind of no general oversight and standard setting around them. Um, when you have a bunch of independent entities, like they're not necessarily um, accountable to anyone other than themselves. And so, you know, GRI was originally formed years ago and was kind of the first original like sustainability reporting standard. But then you have the CDPs and all of these other ones that have, have emerged. Within just the past really like two years, I think the industry has started to recognize that like this is unsustainable. And so the ISSB sustainability reporting standards have been spun up. And ISSB, which is uh, basically a subgroup of the IFRS, for people who aren't familiar with the IFRS, the IFRS governs like financial accounting standards. So when you submit like a 10K or a 10Q or you do your you know, financial reporting, you're following IFRS guidelines. The IFRS and the ISSB are finally starting to like aggregate some of these, like TCFD is getting rolled into the ISSB, SASB is getting rolled into the ISSB. So ultimately, like there is standards consolidation starting to happen, but we still need like all these different organizations to play nice with each other. They need to play nice with the government regulators. The government regulators need to recognize which standards are going to win. So this is like a very evolving process. What if I was going to like fast forward really quickly, I think ultimately in a couple of years, most organizations are going to follow the ISSB 
and then the legal laws and requirements like the CSRD. And I think hopefully the ISSB and CSRD will continue to align together. But that's from like a corporate perspective. Investors still might have different stuff going on. You know, smaller companies like startups might be using B Corp. So it's never going to be this like perfect, there's only one standard. But there is more and more kind of recognition that like we should follow the same approaches. Like the good news is at least with like carbon accounting, everyone kind of agrees like how to count your carbon. And so whether you're using one standard or the other, like your emissions reporting is ultimately going to be the same process. And just to clarify for everyone here, that's why we brought Chris on, because this is an absolute nightmare and you shouldn't spend most of your time focused on this. So, so check them out if it's interesting. Anyway, Scott, continue, Chris. Sorry, I just wanted to jump in there quickly. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, this, it's it's pretty messy. And I think a lot of organizations are really struggling with this right now. Like if you look here at the CSRD in terms of what it's just asking companies to report. And again, this is asking like tens of thousands of companies who have never reported this before. Like you're going to have to report to the government on your pollution impact. Like companies have never done this before. Like most companies have never measured these things. A lot of companies have never measured their impact on like biodiversity and like natural ecosystems or, you know, resource use and circular economy. So this is all new. We're kind of all collectively figuring this out together. Um, and I think again, as we get more precedent essentially established here, it will become more clear uh, how to go about this. And again, hopefully standards consolidation makes this process simpler too. But, you know, while I, I've kind of, you know, positioned this as like a bit of a miasma, there, there are also like real benefits to doing sustainability and ESG reporting and doing it well. Um, for one, like banks and lenders use it in like risk analysis for companies. So better ESG disclosure, better ESG ratings actually translates to better access to capital and like lower cost of capital. So if you're perceived as like a really ESG risky business, you're going to have a tougher time getting capital than a business that is perceived as like well-positioned or highly rated from an ESG perspective. Obviously companies that sell sustainable products and services and fundamentally are mission-driven, you know, those products are often more appealing to customers. They're more appealing to employees. You know, a lot of younger people want to work at companies that are doing good in the world and kind of align with their values. So, you know, there's capital markets benefits here. There's cultural benefits. There's customer and kind of sustainable pricing premium benefits in certain categories. So there's also like business value and ROI reasons to do this. It's not just a kind of a compliance exercise. So I think we kind of talked about this already, but just to recap, you know, there's this kind of mix of like laws, which are things that organizations have to do and have to report. There are these more kind of standards that indicate how you should report. And then there are specific frameworks that provide guidelines and general principles. If you think about this in kind of an importance hierarchy, obviously laws come first, like companies and investors don't want to break laws, but then the standards would typically inform like how you would approach the reporting and the data gathering. And then the frameworks are more often, again, used from a, from a narrative perspective. So how does this actually kind of work in, in practice? And like, how do companies actually go, go about doing this? So typically there's kind of a multi-step process for approaching sustainability and ESG reporting. 
I think the first thing that you should do as an investor or as an organization is like appoint someone who can lead this process. I think where companies often run into issues is either trying to like appoint someone who doesn't have this as their job title, as their responsibility. Like we've seen, you know, supply chain leads or HR leads or operating leads, you know, someone sort of comes to them and says like, congratulations, you're now head of ESG. And they're trying to figure out how to put together a, a program and kind of implement these, these processes in this reporting. You know, sometimes that can go well, but obviously like having a certain level of like subject matter expertise can be really beneficial. So, you know, start by like appointing someone who is responsible for this stuff, but also make sure that, you know, if you need external help or expertise that you, you go out and get it. I think from there, like two good, really important starting steps are one, just like understand and research your exposure and your obligations. You know, if you're an investor and you have like LPs who have specific ESG reporting mandates or want you to share specific information, like understand what those are. If you're a publicly traded company, you know, look at your largest shareholders and understand you know, what ESG disclosure requirements are these investors looking for? It will definitely depend by type. You know, some of the larger institutional investors like BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard are pretty clear from kind of a proxy voting standpoint and from a disclosure requirements perspective, like what information they're looking for. Certain, let's say, like government pension funds might have more specific like social investment criteria than other more like generic or vanilla institutional investors. But, you know, understand kind of what your stakeholders and your constituents are, are looking for. And it can also be really helpful to conduct what's called a materiality assessment. There's different ways to do this. Uh, you can actually use Brightest from a survey perspective if you want, from a product standpoint. But, you know, materiality is kind of a quantitative survey or assessment or study project that you do to understand, again, like, what are my investors looking for? What are my suppliers and customers looking for? What do my employees care about? And then you can kind of synthesize that data to narrow down uh, essentially a broader universe of potential things that you could do into a narrower list of areas to focus on and prioritize. Once you've kind of narrowed down your universe in terms of obligations and exposure and you know financial and strategic materiality, then you know you want to kind of create an action plan or a roadmap with defined KPIs around this. So if investors are asking for my greenhouse gas emissions, because that's a very common, almost internationally recognized like sustainability environmental KPI, I have to say, okay, how do I measure this? You know, what's the process to measure it? And then at some point, should we put an emissions reduction target in place? And, you know, we're going to measure that on the basis of like metric tons of carbon equivalents that our, that our company generates per year. So it's kind of that process of like, what data do I need to get? How do I get it? How do I measure it? And then eventually, should we put targets in place around it to improve that over time? Because that looks good from a capital markets perspective and from an, an operational perspective as well. And, and we've also like seen this a lot inside companies is like sometimes just by virtue of like measuring a baseline or starting somewhere, once kind of management starts to look at it and once the company starts disclosing it, it's like you want to look good, right? You don't want to like set an emissions target and then have emissions going up every year. And it looks like you can't kind of manage that in accordance with your business. 
So, you know, as an organization, once you, once you kind of commit to things, you do want to follow through and make sure that, you know, at a company level or at a portfolio level or a supply chain level, you are actually reducing, reducing and moving these metrics in a positive direction. But how do you how do you get that buy-in? So one of the challenges I've always had, just to just to play devil's advocate a little bit, is information is powerful, but it's not power. So uh, Americans, I like to say it's sixty six percent overweight. It's not an information problem. There's plenty of calorie information everywhere. It's an action problem. So what does it take a to get companies to really get serious about this? And B, once they have those types of insights, what are the types of things that they can do? Just to, just to push a little bit. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good comment. And obviously, you know, there are varying degrees of, let's say, uh, executive leadership, uh, education and understanding of these issues. I think there's varying degrees of kind of commitment. And I think there's, again, different types of organizations who have different you know, priorities and implications around this. In our view, generally, when we're talking with like senior leadership, I think one of the first things that we want to try to understand, or if you're doing this in your own work that you might want to try to understand is like, what's kind of just the level of general understanding and education around this? Because often, you know, people who do not do this professionally, um, this is going to be new to them, right? They don't necessarily understand the regulatory implications. They don't necessarily understand the investor implications or the, the customer implications of this. And so, you know, just going through some general stakeholder education up front can be really helpful and really valuable. And then I think from there, you kind of want to paint it in terms of a couple things. One is like level of aspiration, which is like, do we want to be a leader at this? Do we want to just kind of keep up with the trends or are we okay, like really being a laggard and potentially getting left behind? And I think not all organizations are going to want to be leaders. Like we're not all Patagonias, you know, we're not all Black Rocks. Like we're not necessarily going to, you know, step out front and say like, we really want to drive change. But most organizations don't want to be left behind either. And so I think just understanding kind of where is the industry at right now, like, you know, where is the proverbial puck and like, where is it moving is really, really important. I think from there, illustrating or kind of capturing this in terms of financial consequences or financial opportunities is extremely helpful. So, you know, sometimes like it's pretty basic, right? Like we have a client where there's a new ESG regulation, if they don't uh, take action and gather this information and report under this regulation, they are facing a quarter million dollar fine. So it's pretty simple. It's like, do you want to pay $250,000 or do you want to do something about this, right? Like some of those are pretty black and white, or sometimes again, like a meaningful investor will come to someone or a meaningful customer will show up and kind of knock at the door and say, hey, like, we really need you to do this. So We've also similarly seen examples of like big multinational UK or European companies who have these obligations, who have gone to someone in their supply chain, even in like a different country and said, hey, if you don't set like an emissions reduction target by X date, we might pull our business from you, right? It could be like hundreds of thousands or millions in lost revenue. Stuff like that, where there's like a real like clear financial downside or penalty usually prompts pretty swift action. Like we've seen organizations that were doing virtually nothing in ESG and sustainability 
who are like all of a sudden within a year, like putting out reports, committing to science-based targets, all because there is this like big financial downside. So, you know, there's often the, uh, the like painkillers sell better. Than What's vitamins. the split? What's the split? How, what percent are doing it optionally? And what percent are doing it as the painkiller because either regulation or big fine? It's probably like an 80, 20 rule where I would say like 20% of organizations are doing it kind of to be proactive and for the right reasons. And like 80% are responding to like the stick um, or the, the penalty. And, you know, again, like it's entirely up to the organization. It's like, you can either be like potentially crawled, you know, kicking and screaming into this new trend, or you can try to get ahead of it. And I think one of the things that we've just said to a lot of organizations is, you know, despite what you might see with like certain, you know, conservative politicians railing against ESG, like this trend is not going away. It's a very global trend and it goes well above and beyond like US politics or, you know, American culture or even what the SEC is doing in the United States. Like, what happens in Europe, you know, impacts everyone because of globalization. What happens in Hong Kong or India or Australia impacts everyone because of globalization. So, you know, whether you're doing this because you're like a purpose-driven company and you really want to be a leader, or again, you're just doing it to kind of be compliant and avoid fines and penalties, like the kind of catalyst for your action isn't necessarily um, something that like we want to place a value judgment on. It's more like, are you going to do something about it? Okay, great. Now that you've committed and recognized that you need to do something about it, like how do we implement this in the most kind of thoughtful and, uh, and effective way for you? Because you could spend tons of money and waste tons of resources doing this poorly, or you could do kind of more, let's say, efficient and lean, effective, scalable, uh, kind of really solid narrative work and get better results. So, you know, the the output and the input don't necessarily always correlate. Like some organizations, again, are not good at this uh, and waste tons of money on it. And other organizations are very good at it um, and do it very cost effectively. Sorry to interrupt again. I just like playing devil's advocate sometimes. I think it's also valuable for people here because... We, we've got a lot of corporates in our in our climate techies community. We've got lots of startups, lots of government folks. And one of the one of the most important things I say when it comes to solving climate change is that we can't rely on people's better nature or, or for people to be better than us because we're all inherently only human, which means evolutionarily, if we like it or not, we're lazy, we're greedy, we're power hungry. We like to hoard and we focus on yours truly because that's what we're supposed to do to survive. And I think that we have to factor in those human factors that are within all of us because that's what on average we kind of boil down to. So if it does take a carrot plus a stick, maybe that's what we need for climate change. Yeah. And I think, again, it's like, you know, we're dealing with one of the most existential problems in human history, and it is going to require us to like pretty fundamentally like transform our economy and where we get energy from and how our grids work and, you know, what we eat and what we do with it. So like we're talking about pretty transformational change and it's essentially transformational change that like needs to happen over the next, you could arguably say decade, but let's say a couple decades to be fair. And it's like, we're either going to do this or we're not. Um, I would at least like to think that like humanity is going to try. 
Um, and I think if like, if we're going to try, like we should play to win, right? Like we shouldn't do this half-hearted, like we should commit and we should make, you know, substantial improvements. And again, I think there are a lot of people, particularly people who are working in sustainability and ESG and circularity who are like, you know, genuinely care about climate change, genuinely want to do the right thing. You know, we're ultimately talking about, I think, kind of, as you said, like, what are economic incentives, you know, like, that's the, the real challenge is like, you know, I'm a general manager at a company, and my bonus and my compensation is focused on like me generating more revenue or improving profit margins. Well, if I implement like more sustainable materials in my products, those are going to cost more. So that's going to cut into my profit margins. So me being more sustainable kind of runs counter to like how I'm incentivized and how my company is trying to work. Like there's a lot of that like tension or dissonance happening inside companies right now. And I think that's what really needs to be reconciled. It's like, you know, organizations need to set like a budget for sustainability and they need to look at the, the upside around this as well. Like more sustainable products often have a price premium. So potentially you could have a more sustainable product that actually has higher margins or higher sales volume or isn't going to run into these regulatory penalties that we're starting to see. So, you know, there is the carrot stick mentality and there are upsides and downsides around inaction. But generally, I think the worst thing you can do as a company is just not do anything about it and like hope this doesn't affect you um, because it will. You know, if you're like a tiny, like 10 person startup, you probably can get by without like worrying too much about ESG. But, you know, once you've raised a Series B or a Series C, like if you're on that IPO track or you're on that private equity track, like this is going to show up eventually. You know, we're when, a, when does it normally show? When does it normally show up? That's a good. That's a good um, jumping off point. When do when do companies normally come to you guys and inquire about Brightest or the other ESG solutions out there? Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, we're we're like a fifteen person company right now, and we just hired our first sustainability lead, like someone who is going to officially like be responsible for sustainability at our company, um, and she starts next month. I would say we're probably a little early because we're a B Corp and we care about this and we want to kind of, you know, drink our own Kool-Aid. What I would say generally is it is typically around the Series B, Series C stage for startups that investors start to look at these types of things or will start to ask for information around this. Depends who your investors are, depends on what kind of, let's say, exit path or um, trajectory you're on. But the higher up you get in terms of institutional rounds or, or kind of the capital stack, the more likely you are going to run into this. Like most private equity firms are starting to adopt ESG frameworks and standards and disclosure. It might only be like six or seven metrics, so it might not be super complex. But like if you're entering the PE world, you're going to run into this. Again, if you're going to IPO, you're going to run into this. So it's more a question of like, what is your destiny as a company? If you're like a local small like lemonade stand that, you know, is operating in like one city, you're probably never going to run into like any major issues. But if you're, if you're sort of heading on a certain trajectory as a company, like this is coming for you, as long as your little lemonade stand like isn't selling lemonade to like Big Corp next door and Big Corp cares about this. So they're going to hit you with like a supplier procurement assessment questionnaire around like what are you doing from a sustainability standpoint so one thing one thing i like to bring up and i try to do and i'm not always great at is i think that companies should focus on things that make their beer better and not on things like processes and paperwork 
So if, but let's say someone did want to do all this on their own, what type of time commitment would uh, an SME or a corporate be looking at if they did actually need to do these type of reporting? And what size companies, at least in Europe, where there are a lot of regulations, what size companies are kind of the suddenly you have to do it kind of deal? So in Europe, basically every company over 250 employees is going to have to start reporting and complying with this law if you are a European-based company. If you're an international company, um, you meet different thresholds, but you would potentially get kind of roped into this if you have a large like physical presence and you're generating more than $100 million a year in Europe. So like the Proctors and Gambles and the Nikes are all going to ultimately have to report to the CSRD because they do that much business in Europe. But generally, like the European local threshold is 250 employees. Or if you're like an asset manager, pretty sure off the top of my head, it's 40 million in assets, but I might be wrong. Nobody hold, hold me to that one. I'll, I'll fact check that one. Actually, ignore, ignore that. I should, I should figure out what the actual number is. But if you have a certain number of assets... Um, that trumps employees, but generally for like a company, it's 250 employees. Um, and then, you know, going back to what you were saying in terms of time. So I think if you're like a smaller company or you're newer to this, there's kind of two things that you probably need to do. Number one is like, look at this from a company policy perspective and make sure you have some kind of basic operating guidelines in place that uh, make sense and, and would protect some of your risk. So some, you know, examples of this would be like, for example, with, you know, suppliers and with procurement, if you're buying physical goods and services, do you have something in your like supplier code of conduct or policy that says you're not going to work with like certain types of companies that, you know, potentially are doing issues from a human rights perspective, or, you know, maybe you don't want to buy from like fossil fuel companies or something like that. You know, you might put in provisions that say, hey, from an office perspective, we're going to try to buy clean energy and we're going to try to use our energy more efficiently. We're going to, you know, unplug our laptops and stuff at night. We're going to try to put measures in place that will reduce our emissions. And then, you know, maybe from like a company travel policy, there's like pretty basic stuff, but it could be like, hey, you know, if you can take the train rather than flying, don't do it. If you're going to order an Uber, you know, order an Uber green, right? Like there are these incremental steps that you can kind of codify into your work that can actually have pretty significant implications on your emissions and honestly like don't really impact your business day to day. You know, could like a meeting in person that you flew to could it have been a video conference? Maybe maybe not, right? It, th that's kind of a value judgment, but I think putting some of those policies and practices into place is a good step and then, you know, deciding on like 3 to 5 really important KPIs and potentially either doing it yourself like DIYing it hiring a consultant or like buying a software tool like Brightest and then, you know, using that as like the system that's going to track and measure and manage that KPI. Again, depends how much work or time you want to put into this. If you're doing it with like a pretty good automation friendly tool, this actually doesn't take that much time. It's like export something from your like accounting system, upload a CSV file and like you're pretty much good to go. Like it's not a huge lift, but again, it depends a little bit on like the specifics of your business. One thing that I think is really important, and I've, I've had some conversations with folks in the past, but I think giving the ability to brag to your customers, clients uh, is, a, is a great model. What do, what do you guys do and what do you recommend to companies to do where, call it greenwashing, call it whatever you want. If companies are taking actions and making substantial improvements towards what they're doing, 
how can they get the biggest PR bang for their buck so they have more funding to put into their green initiatives? I think I find that to be a good thing. What do, what do you do? What do you guys recommend? Yeah, it's an interesting question around greenwashing because I would say on one hand, it's it, in some ways it's obviously a negative if it's like disingenuous, right? Like, you know, again, like an ExxonMobil or a Chevron talking about their sustainability is, you know, let's say pretty problematic for a variety of reasons. Um, then there's the more, I guess you could say like well-intentioned but wrong greenwashing where often the marketing or the corpse comm department like finds something sustainable, doesn't really understand it, but like wants to talk about it anyway. Like I hear a lot about, you know, the sustainability person is like, no, 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 we shouldn't say it that way. Or like, no, that's technically wrong, but it's not necessarily coming from a bad place. Like companies, as you said, like do want to talk about this because like, it is a good thing to talk about. Like it benefits your brand. Customers care about it. People are interested in it. Like it is very beneficial. I think the key things there are, you know, as much as possible, like try to ground what you're saying in like facts. So, you know, rather than saying like, hey, we make like a sustainable product, say, you know, we make a product that is, you know, 30% recycled materials and like we have the receipts to prove that. So I think where you get into trouble as an organization with greenwashing is where, you know, you're offering kind of a lot of narrative and a lot of like essentially like qualitative statements that aren't necessarily grounded in reality. And one of the benefits to doing this like a little more diligently and systematically is like when you actually have data, like really talking about that, you know, saying like we are certified as a B Corp or our product has, you know, been certified by Ecotech or, you know, we have a product that achieved like an A rating according to this like respected independent ratings agency. It's like those types of things where there's real credibility around it tends to be the most powerful um, from like a consumer messaging standpoint. But it's also interesting because like, again, not to get too into the weeds on this, like there's a lot of interesting research going on right now around like food labeling, you know, because some companies are starting to put like the emissions on the label or starting to put like certain certifications. And like, I definitely, because I'm a nerd about this, like I check labels when I'm buying stuff and I'm like, oh, is this, you know, glyphosate free? And like, where was this made? And like, who made, you know, so like, I'm looking for that stuff. I don't think your average like garden variety consumer is looking for that stuff, but in a sense, in kind of a weird, like abstract way, greenwashing actually kind of helps educate consumers because it's like making sustainability more top of mind. And then you're hopefully assuming that at least a subset or a, a good majority of consumers are going to start to like self-educate a little bit, or at least ask questions or maybe dig a little deeper. Some won't obviously. Um, but that's where, you know, somebody's going to start like calling these companies out or saying, you know, Hey, actually like you're claiming X, but it's Y and that's BS. And then, you know, as you said, again, it's like the carrot stick, like once your customers start complaining that you're lying about your sustainability on your labels or your marketing, usually as a company, you're going to, you're going to tighten things up. And there's a lot of like regulatory stuff happening in the UK right now around that, around like disingenuous, sustainable advertising and, and cracking down on it. So I think we're heading in a direction where more sustainability claims will be backed up by like actual data and information. But again, if you have that data and information, you should absolutely be making those claims because I think that is a real kind of differentiator. And that is like a powerful part of your organization's story.
and be making those claims with statistics, which it sounds like you guys can help with. Uh, the, the food thing that you brought up is just a perfect point. I remember in the US and there's like organic and then there's like different terms that are basically like the same term, but they relate to the different percentage of organic yada, yada in yada, yada. And you're just reading through this and it's like how many different marketing standards and trickeries can be invented to make me think that something is healthy that's not. And I, I, I worry a little bit with all of the different standards on the ESG and re reporting side of things. Yeah. And I think from a product and from a consumer perspective, this would be another place where it would be tremendously beneficial to consumers to consolidate standards. Like, um, like the EU seems to be trying to consolidate for food around like the Nutra score, for example, and like a couple specific standards. But it's hard. It's like, how do you get the French to agree with the Germans to agree with the Italians on like how to label your products? And like companies are going to, or sorry, not companies, but countries are going to make different decisions. And so if you are a company that's serving different markets, like you're going to have to comply with different local laws. Like the more we can get countries and regions to agree with each other, I think, again, it's better for consumers, it's better for the environment and it's less noise, but you know, it's, it's challenging. It is challenging. And in, in terms of, in terms of audience, if you've got questions, be sure to, to post those in there and asked what specifically for, for PE farms are the most reporting or the most relevant sustainability and ESG reporting specifically in the U S that they need to know about or focus on. Sounds like yeah, we got some PE in the house. I'll, I'll take one minute. I'll, I'll wrap this up and then, then we can move to questions. So I think, you know, obviously, as we kind of talk through this process, you know, implementing data collection processes and systems is really important. I think once you have all these things in place, you can actually start doing your reporting, you can assess progress, review and kind of make improvements. I think, you know, learnings along the way, just to recap really quickly, and then and then we'll, we can switch to questions, you know, this is not like a side project or a part-time job, like sustainability or ESG is like a department within a company and it has strategic implications for your organization, particularly the larger and more investor centric you get. I do think it's really important to kind of start small and narrow and then build up capabilities over time. So don't boil the ocean, don't overwhelm yourself, like start and kind of work incrementally. This is very collaborative as we were talking about stakeholder education, buy-in, alignment, super important. If your executive team's not on board, this isn't gonna move forward. If your company like culture doesn't believe in it, it's gonna it's gonna stall out. So super important there. I think you know obviously there are a lot of opportunities for efficiency and automation. And then I think one other thing that's that's a good thing in general, just as like a closing point, is like peers can be a very good source of inspiration and benchmarks. So if you are new to this and you are kind of lost, look at what your competitors are doing. Like look at what other firms are doing. Like there's often really good reference examples. You know you have to tailor it to your own organization, but. At the end of the day, there's a lot of like really good public information on standards and, and on uh, that type of information. And again, obviously, there are tech tools like Brightest that can help you um, in a lot of ways. So I guess with that, um, the PE question. So there are kind of some established PE standards around ESG reporting frameworks, and we've seen a couple different examples of those. So I would say the most common ones on the environmental side, it would be greenhouse gas emissions. So what are your scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions in like kilograms or metric tons of carbon per year uh, from your company? 
we don't have to get into oh, scopes on this call, but you know, essentially it's oh, like how much carbon emissions or greenhouse right. gas emissions is your company producing? Um, often there are metrics around waste. So like how much waste are you producing as an organization? And like what percentage of that waste is recycled or upcycled or goes into kind of a circular process is like diverted in some way. And what percentage isn't like it gets landfilled or it goes to a specific destination. Um, often there's questions around employees. So like PE firms often care about like kind of social employee metrics, like net new hires, uh, employee turnover rate, voluntary versus involuntary. If you're doing like manufacturing things, um, it would be uh, like lost time injury frequency rates, you know, the number of workplace accidents and incidents. Um, and then, you know, some governance metrics, like, do you have these policies in place? You know, what are your cybersecurity controls? And, you know, do you have like risk management process in place? So generally, I would say at a high level from an environmental perspective, it's emissions, energy, waste, and water, particularly water, if it matters for your business, if it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Uh, employees kind of in what's going on with your employee base. And then what do you have from like a corporate controls and governance standpoint? Um, that's typically what like your average PE firm would be looking at. Awesome. And folks who are tuning in, do you guys have any questions? You can throw on your mic and shoot them out here. You can put them in here as well to the, the chat. And if you're overwhelmed, you know, I'm overwhelmed. I'm glad I don't have to do this. But if I did, I would just use a tool. So forward.vc slash brightest if you guys need a tool or want to talk to Chris. And um, anything else that you want to leave people with, Chris, as we're waiting for kind of questions to come in, feel free to turn your videos on, your cameras on. If you're shy, just type the question in. Uh, speak we've now. A, sorry, we've got a couple of questions. Um, one from Margarita earlier. But uh, Margarita, do you want to go off mute and say it out loud? Or do you want us to read it? Oh, hi. No, I had a couple. Well, I think um, one of my earlier questions was addressed around greenwashing, right? Because, for, and, and also for the 80% that are going to be kicking and screaming into this. And you think like, gosh, if you go through all that trouble, why greenwash? Why not just do it the right, do it right, you know? It's, they're both work, so do it correctly. But um, I'm particularly interested in the S part of ESG. Obviously, um, the E is very important because of climate change. But if we don't, but there's also an S ramification to climate change in terms of just transition and the social impacts of, of you know, doing the, the transition in the economy and, and, of course, people being left behind. What are you seeing out there in terms of companies who, for whatever reason, they can't do well, they can't perform well in the East? in the e-space because of the nature of their business. Are you seeing examples of companies that are doing particularly well in the S? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think that S has like multiple different dimensions. There's, there's S from an employee perspective, which again is looking at things like diversity and inclusion, health and safety, company culture, company policies. Then there's S in terms of like supply chain. So what's going on with your suppliers and working conditions in your supply chain, then you have consumers and customers, and then you have your um, potentially other stakeholders as well, like communities. So I think, you know, the best organizations that are doing stuff from a social perspective, I think have like a genuine theory of change are often working with external partners and are really looking and kind of asking the question around like, how do I implement systems change? So for example, you know, we've seen a company in the food sector where they've been doing a lot of micro grants specifically focused around one, 
trying to help farmers uh, convert their farming practices from what you would consider kind of industrial, like monocrop agriculture into more sustainable biodynamic farming. So really, again, trying to like shift the way that the food supply is created. And then they'll basically say, hey, if you're a biodynamic or like a more sustainable farming practice, we'll source and buy from you instead of from kind of the factory farming operation. So you have the actual like financial incentive for the farmer to transition. So it's like, we'll give you the grant up front to help you make the transition. And then once you've made it, we'll buy from you to keep you in business and support you along the way. You know, we've seen similar examples of that with like um, supporting scholarships or making like investments or grants and like minority owned or women owned businesses. So thinking about, you know, diversity or like how do you create wealth in a specific community? I think it's it's looking at kind of the social from that standpoint and saying, you know, yes, like we could make donations to charity, but like thinking kind of beyond just like writing a check and donating it to a nonprofit, like how do we affect systems change in a specific uh, segment of the economy or a specific community or like a city where we are headquartered? And like, what are the steps to doing that? Because, you know, again, you can do a little bit and I think think kind of thoughtfully and more strategically about that and end up with like a much better result than just saying, you know, we're going to donate, you know, however much dollars to like, you know, eradicating poverty, right? Like that's not to necessarily say that like poverty eradication shouldn't happen and that there aren't great NGOs working on that. But it's like, is that the best fit for your business specifically to affect the kind of change that you want to see in the world? Or locally? Yeah, we have a few more questions streaming in. Uh, Rando, do you want to refer back to yours? And I realize we're also short in time, so. Uh, okay, yes. Uh, thank you. Uh, regarding this E part of ESG, um, I understand that this uh, carbon-related uh, uh, stuff is, is more developed, at least in, in Europe, uh, the markets and everything. But if we take the, um, the now the emerging uh, uh, the space of uh, um, uh, ecosystems and biodiversity. Uh, what is the state of the art of um, measuring uh, the impacts, the, the dependencies in the form of I don't know ecosystem services and impacts to the the state of the the natural capital assets, and then. Uh, deriving the potential, I don't know, for example, financial risks to, to the company. Um, you've been in this space. Um, it's, I have a lot of questions around it. Uh, do, 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 you, do, do you see it uh, some, somehow um, being standardized or, or tools or methods being developed that you are following, for example? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I think you're right that like carbon and emissions measurement is much more kind of established. And like we have like methodologies around that, whereas uh, biodiversity and ecosystems and kind of natural systems protection is newer. So essentially, there's there's the, the TNFD, the Task Force for Nature Related Financial Disclosure. Uh, TNFD is a new kind of third party independent framework for like natural systems measurement and reporting. It's like brand new, so it's still mm. being developed. But I think TNFD is starting to give some interesting kind of directional recommendations and suggestions around natural systems. And then in the EU CSRD, there is a biodiversity disclosure section 
um, which actually, by the way, they sort of gave companies a dispensation on. So they said like in year one, you don't have to report on biodiversity because it's so new. Um, but like essentially, you know, you can think about it in a couple different terms and it's going to depend a lot on your business. You know, if you're, if you're like an agricultural or like a food oriented company, you likely have a lot more implications around natural habitats, but it's looking at things like, you know, how much, uh, let's say business operations are happening and let's say like water scarce areas and how much water are you consuming? And are you doing anything as a business to sort of rectify or address that? Or, you know, how many hectares or acres of like farmland or land or forest or whatever are you impacting? Are you impacting it positively, negatively, you know, things like that. So I think it's starting to look at like geographic area. Is it Mm -hmm. net negative? Is it net positive? Are you able to kind of balance out your negatives and positives? And then like, you know, potentially what are you doing from a resource perspective with you know, water or something else like a nickel or a cobalt or, you know, some material that you're sourcing. Who puts the scoring and ratings and weightings on different companies in terms of how that works on the ESG side of things? Yeah, so you you definitely have this kind of ecosystem of like ratings providers. So S&P is in the game, uh, Morningstar Sustainalytics, MSCI, a lot of the big investment ratings um, companies are doing ratings of public companies. In the private sector, it's you have some like third parties that are doing ratings, although I would say the methodology of those ratings isn't always the best. Um, CDP does ratings around like climate, um, for example, and kind of water and a few other areas for companies. I think CDP is probably the best like third party independent rating system, but they're only looking at kind of environmental. Like as far as I know, there's really no good like third party social sustainability like rating provider or uh, agency that I've ever seen. Understood. Any last questions, folks? Anything you got left for Chris? There are a few more in the chat, but I realize we're also up on time. So I don't know how how you guys want to handle that. I may have missed them in the... Might as well. Okay, strategy. Well, this one, here's a good one. Strategies for scope three upstream and reducing emissions. So how do you get rid of almost 100% of scope three emissions? or even have a sense of your supplier's footprint? Yeah, so there's basically two ways to go about the supplier footprint question. There's kind of the the like top-down big data approach and there's the bottom up, like you gotta either research or ask them. So, you know, a lot of organizations will send out like supplier surveys and questionnaires and we'll try to collect data from the supplier. Um, obviously there's like audit and survey fatigue and you have to make sure the supplier is providing you with accurate data or the supplier even knows how to, you know, measure the thing, right? Like, you know, this is the classic issue of like, you send your supplier an emissions like questionnaire and they don't know how to calculate their emissions. So like, what do you do? So, you know, there's definitely like education and engagement that needs to take place. Um, I think what we're seeing more and more of now is using like, again, I guess what you could say is quote unquote, like data sets, like third party or public data. So using satellite imagery or, you know, existing kind of public data repositories, like, you know, there's the emergence of like open supply chain. uh, I think it's called open supply hub that a lot of like a kind of a corporate consortium is working on. So 
using some of these public data sets to try to get a baseline sense of particularly like who are your largest and most strategic suppliers, because obviously your largest suppliers by size and by spend are going to be the most of your emissions. Like uh, we, I was at a conference recently with like Disney and a couple other companies and, you know, they, they said this publicly. So, I mean, I can share it, but like, there's probably like a thousand factories in like certain supply chains that constitute like basically all of the emissions or like 90% of the emissions, you know, some of these like mega factories in, uh, you know, generally Southeast Asia, you could say, um, but often elsewhere, right, that that are contributing a really large uh, share of like a particular supply chain's emissions. So it's really understanding like, where are those factories? Have you audited them? Can you get credible third party data on them? And then making kind of a value judgment. And you just have to prioritize. Like we've seen companies who have 40,000, 50,000 suppliers. And it's just like, it's impossible. Like you're not going to be able to gather reliable data for all of those companies. You're not going to be able to visit all of them. You kind of have to start with like your most important relationships and work backwards. And then you start to see what companies like Apple are doing where, you know, they're basically paying for their suppliers to adopt renewable energy and adopt energy efficiency measures. So, you know, Apple and, and other companies as well, like Dell is also doing this, you know, they might issue like a green bond or a green loan and then use the proceeds to help their suppliers like finance sustainable uh, transformation or transitions at their own company. Awesome. And then we are running out or totally out of time, but one last question and then for folks that want to check out, learn more, maybe get an ESG system in place for their company, forward.vc slash brightest. I'm sure Chris can hook you up. Last question here from Anne. Again, from Anne, two to five most important KPIs for somebody who's not in the heavy industry or hard labor side of things. Think software, education, SaaS, et cetera. Yeah, so I definitely think every company, even if you're not like an industrial company, should measure their emissions. Like carbon accounting, again, it's like the universal environmental KPI. And and like carbon accounting for SaaS companies is is non-trivial. Like we're we're working with a client and we were looking at their like AWS and uh, Google Cloud emissions, and like they're generating a lot of emissions through server usage. Like ultimately, servers consume electricity, it might or might not be renewable, but you know, it's basically energy usage. So I think every company, even if you're not in a heavy industry, you should measure your emissions. Like that's probably your first environmental KPI. And then on the social side, I would really look at like indicators of, you know, employee satisfaction and employee happiness. So, you know, what's your rate of like turnover, particularly involuntary turnover? Um, do you have like an employee engagement survey? You know, what's your rate of like employee engagement, employee satisfaction? Do people enjoy working there? Are they happy? Are they motivated? You know, are you a, a net hirer assuming your business is growing? Like, I think those are the two places to start is like, are, is my workplace, you know, happy, healthy, motivated and engaged? And then like, do I understand my emissions? And I think those are probably the, the places that most startups should start. Awesome. And Chris, thanks so much for coming on. This has been super informative. We're going to have all of this on our YouTube channel, as well as podcast, uh, our techies platform, all of that. If you guys are watching on YouTube or haven't subscribed yet, it's just the startuptank.com slash YouTube. And be sure to, to sign up for our Climate Techies series. Anything you want to add, Chris, before we uh, before you jump? No, I think uh, I'll let people get on with their day. But uh, yeah, thank you all for the great questions. I appreciate your your presence and attention. And yeah, thank you for having me.
Awesome. Thanks for coming on. And guys, don't waste your time on paperwork when software can do it. Forward.vc slash brightest if you want to get your ESG in line. And thanks. We'll talk to you all later and cheers.